0: Thanks for tuning in to My Weight Live, the podcast where we talk to medical experts about the latest research and how you can apply it to reaching your best weight. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at myweightwhattoknow.com or search My Weight What to Know on Facebook. We're always posting new articles, videos, and tools that make living a healthy life easier. Tonight, we're here with therapist Katie Raskin. She's a licensed professional counselor and a holistic health coach who focuses on helping people who struggle with emotional eating and binge eating. So thank you so much for joining us tonight, Katie. Thank you for having me, I'm I'm really excited to be here. So folks, uh, as you have questions for Katie, please just put them in the comments for us and we will get to as many of them as we can tonight. And also tell us where you're watching from. We're here in Atlanta and we love to know where you're watching from. So Katie, emotional eating is something that so many people struggle with. And I think a lot of people can identify with the question that Lori from our Facebook group asked us. She said, why, why, why do I gobble something unhealthy, feel terrible about it, cry, and then do the exact same thing next week? And that's really the question, right? We we have this behavior, we hate that we do it, and yet we can't stop. Yeah. So what would you say to Lori or someone watching at home who's feeling like Lori just spoke their truth?
1: Yeah. Well, first, I would send a lot of compassion towards Lori or anyone struggling with these issues because they really do feel so disempowering and frustrating and they're just very challenging. But I would I would start with maybe asking Lori to explore, what is the payoff for this behavior? Is there a payoff? So thinking about the time that she maybe thought about this food, fantasized about the relief or the flavor that it, you know, the positive experience it would give her to the time that it took to prepare it or buy it and eat it. This was all a break from whatever she was experiencing before. So, something to look forward to or something to take her
0: mind off a challenge. Yes, absolutely.
1: Uh, you know, a pleasant experience and, and possibly a break from any unpleasant emotion, maybe it was boredom or stress or, um, so that's something worth looking at, um, asking yourself the question, is there something I'm trying to feel or not feel, um, Uh. is, uh, you know, what is the need that needs to get met here? Um, the other thing that comes to mind with this question would be something called last supper eating. So this tends to be the idea that the diet will start tomorrow
0: Uh. and,
1: um, (laughs) Gotcha. We can easily. <laughs> I think every dieter knows that refrain. Yes.
0: Yeah, so, so we we'll, uh, we'll need
1: everything can, tonight. Exactly. And can easily convince ourselves that this will be the last time we're going to eat this food or we're not going to eat it again like this Absolutely. or we're just going to have a little bit. Um so that can be problematic. And of course, the way that the question is phrased, it sounds like Lori has a lot of guilt about this food. And anytime absolutely there's guilt or feeling or you know, restricted from a food, we're gonna have an internal drive to go for that food. It it's really a healthy sign that she has a sense
0: of autonomy and you know, she's, she's being the boss. She's not letting the diet or the sense of the good food or bad food be the boss. Yes, yes, exactly. So what you were talking about at the beginning, just to kind of circle back to that, you were talking about a lot of um, curiosity and a lot of kind of self-awareness being really paying attention to Mm -hmm. what's driving us to eat, how we're feeling when we're eating. How might someone, if if this is new to them, how might someone go about um, figuring out how to start that process? Well,
1: in this case with Lori, you know, asking yourself like, what am I trying to feel or not feel simply asking yourself that question can be really helpful. And then as far as like ways to, um, actually sit with a discomfort and the uncomfortable feeling that she might be trying to escape. There are lots of practices that can help with that. Um, I often with clients will use mindfulness practices that helps us get more attuned with our emotional experience. Absolutely. Um, often, um, Part of that, you know, mindfulness is paying attention to interoceptive awareness, so getting more attuned with our internal experience that helps us to feel more regulated around food and around emotions because all emotions have... A um, physical, inter, yeah,
0: uh, internal sensations that correspond with them. Um, I'm going to pause you right there. So the first question you suggested that Lori might ask herself was, okay, what am I trying to not feel? And let's say that Lori asked herself that question and she feels an incredible amount of sadness. Mm-hmm. What would be the next step for her to take? What might she What might she do next? Another great question. Um, this can be a
1: great opportunity to go um, process with a therapist. Um other, you know, activities that I might help to, uh, that might offer for somebody to help increase their mindfulness would be journaling uh. um, and just learning. You know, the cool thing about mindfulness is the more that we sit with an uncomfortable feeling, the better we get at it, the more psychological That's, flexibility we have.
0: Okay, so I, I just wanna call that out because I think a lot of times we it's really difficult to feel a feeling and it's like, I don't ever wanna do that again. That was really painful. But yes. what I hear you saying is, it gets easier the more Absolutely. we practice at it. So yeah. maybe, do you recommend maybe someone sits with something for like 60 seconds or you know take the time longer? I'm not a professional, I'm just asking. Yeah. I'm asking no, that's a great question
1: because it, it it
0: sounds great, but it's like how do you actually do it? Yeah. Um, yes,
1: I often will tell clients, and this this is you know a process that you have to work up to and it's not mm-hmm. gonna work every time. And you might not remember to use these kinds of practices every time you feel an intense sadness or another uncomfortable, unpleasant emotion. But I would offer um the technique of you know getting curious, so starting to notice where do I feel this in my body? Do I feel it in my chest, in my in my abdomen, um, and starting to get curious about what those sensations actually feel like? Are they? Is it a gripping or a tightness? Whenever I ask clients what an emotion feels like, I get a varied response. People feel their
0: feelings you know in lots of different ways, in lots of different places in their body, and exactly. so so even just being a little curious about that, where am I feeling this? Mm-hmm. Can make it feel a little more manageable. So you spoke a little bit about mindfulness awareness therapy, uh, actually mindfulness-based eating awareness therapy, and that's really your specialty. Mm -hmm. You were starting to talk about how being in our bodies can help us process these emotional eating, these feelings that lead us to eat emotionally. What's kind of the next step? And and if someone were to go see a therapist who specialized in mindfulness-based eating awareness therapy— what might they talk about? Mm-hmm. So mindfulness-based
1: eating awareness therapy is a type of therapy that I, I did some training in, and it's really geared around three main things. So the first being uh, mindfulness practices to help around hunger and fullness cues. So becoming more aware of of how your body feels when you feel hungry and when you feel full. We we know what it feels like to have our stomach growling or if we're really full, having like a distended stomach, but we don't often pay attention to all the little uh, nuance in between, in between. <laughs> exactly Yeah. and all the different ways we can feel hunger so that's you know number one and then we also uh, you know that involves that interoceptive awareness that I was talking about getting in touch with those internal cues helps us to be more regulated with emotions and food we also with mindfulness based eating awareness therapy uh talk, that's quite about, a yeah. <laughs> um, we talk about taste uh, mindfulness of taste and taste satiety Um, so often we'll notice that if we that
0: the taste of something the pleasant aspects of the taste dissipate uh, after a few bites okay i want to pause on that because i remember the first time that someone said that to me like the first few bites of dessert taste so good and then it's almost like your brain goes on automatic and you don't taste it anymore so what i hear you saying is really getting the full charge out of those first few bites really paying attention yes and and just being aware of what you're eating while you're eating it
1: Absolutely. Exactly. And and that doesn't mean that you have to stop eating it after the first few bites by any means. It's just, as we start to pay more attention, things start to connect in our brain and we get a little bit more, you know, as we get more awareness, we ultimately have a little bit more of a say in how much we want to eat of something. I so bringing it. mindfulness is key. And then the, the third major aspect of the mindfulness-based eating awareness therapy and any type of therapy that I'm doing with a client would be self-acceptance, self-compassion, and forgiveness. So we know that shame and guilt are not at all motivating. And we know that when we feel more compassion towards ourselves and more acceptance, our nervous system is in a much calmer state to be able to make wise decisions about our, food choices and just in life. Um, so we become much more confident and competent.
0: So that's interesting what you're saying that self-acceptance and self-compassion allows us to make better decisions because I think a lot of times we think oh if I'm nice to myself, I'll never be motivated to exercise or eat healthy. I'll just sit around eating bonbons. but that's not yeah. what I hear you saying exactly
1: and and that's certainly what we're conditioned and this culture to believe it's every you know, Will, willpower, self-control, being hard on ourselves. That's um, the way to succeed. <laughs> and there, there's some great um, work. Kristen Neff, um, she has a website, selfcompassion.org. Big
0: fan of Kristen Neff. Yes. 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 And so she's
1: done research and she has great resources on her website to help start to cultivate self-compassion.
0: If you are looking to start learning about self-compassion, uh, that website is a great place to start. So Katie, um, we're going to talk about intuitiving, but first I want to talk a little bit more about self-compassion. And self acceptance. And how, you know, if someone is used to just beating up on themselves, as I think most people who eat emotionally are, you know, Mm -hmm. we all feel terrible about it, how might someone do a little pattern disrupt and start thinking about being kind to themselves instead? Great question. So I think um, when I'm working with clients one on one,
1: um, we'll often do that. I have found to be helpful in cultivating some self compassion is to think about yourself as a little kid. Um, So that sounds. I don't know, maybe random or something, but we tend to have a little bit more compassion for like kids and for animals. And if we can think about ourselves as, you know, a a younger version of ourselves, sometimes that can help to create a little bit more compassion. And really, I think those resources on Kristen F's website can be helpful, but also, understanding the science behind it, because once you understand that self-compassion actually leads to more success,
0: you're a little more motivated to do it. <laughs> it doesn't um, feel self-indulgent. It feels yeah. like, oh, no, this is the smart thing to do.
1: Yeah. And I think asking yourself, to, what would I say to a close friend or relative uh, in this situation? Part of the key is remembering to ask yourself that question, but that can be useful and help you to reframe.
0: I love that. Yeah. All right. So I want to say hi to Gloria. Hi to Debbie from Chatham, Ontario. Um, Teresa says, emotional eating for me means eating until uncomfortable. And then I forget what I was upset about. How do I stop this? Mm -hmm. So that's a very specific question. I think uh, Teresa's been watching. So interested to hear kind of what might you say to Teresa about how she can stop this? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, so I would start with telling Teresa that, uh, you
1: know, I don't know, obviously, all your background, but it is very likely that there's some amount of of restriction or deprivation, whether you're actually restricting your food or you've been, you know, on and off diets, or you have some like mental restrictions. So you you think that this is bad, that you shouldn't be eating this much, which... You would have every right to think that you mm-hmm. were bombarded with diet information all the time um, and food rules, and most of us have since we were little kids. So it makes sense that that you would feel that way. But intuitive eating, which is a therapy that I use with my next a lot. question,
0: <laughs> let's talk about intuitive eating. Yeah,
1: that's that's a very helpful approach because it helps to. Um, Take that feelings of restriction and deprivation away. When that happens, you have a lot more trust around food and you're able to actually eat, you know, be more in tune and intuitive, noticing your hunger and fullness and being able to eat accordingly uh, instead of eating until you're uncomfortable. So, you know, part of intuitive eating, similar to mindfulness-based eating and awareness therapy, they're very similar, is really getting in touch um, through, concentrated you know, practicing on what hunger and fullness feels like. Um, at the same time, as we're talking about intuitive eating, I'll say there are 10 principles, the first of which is unconditional permission to eat. So this means you have unconditional permission to eat whatever you want and whatever quantity of whatever
0: you want. Um, I, I am thinking a lot of people watching at home are like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? Did yes. you just say that? And I think yes, you did. And that's a very <laughs> typical response. It's, a, it's an,
1: an overwhelming idea. And for a a lot of people, they immediately feel anxiety or fear. And understandably, because if you've ever felt like you, you may have felt completely out of control around food. I think a lot of people Um, feel that way. Yes. Yes. So so intuitive eating gets simplified a lot to the hunger and fullness diet to, you know. Ah, it does. Yes, yes. you're right. Yes. Um, Eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. But there's a lot more involved there. Um, A lot of tools and Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole framework to help you
0: to be able to do this. That's okay. So I'm going to pause you there. I want to talk a little bit about how we can eat intuitively when there are a lot of processed foods out there that are kind of designed to disrupt our feeling of satiety. I mean, a recent study showed that you know, when people ate more ultra processed foods, they ate more quickly, uh, mm-hmm. so that that feeling of satiety doesn't kick in. So, how do we balance these two approaches? And you may say we don't even try to; we just move forward with intuitive eating. Well, yes,
1: I would say that. That um, so actually, <clears throat> there are a few different things I could say in response to this. One being that um, we are there's a lot of food fear. You know, we in, in our culture now there's so much information floating around about food. Um, one thing being that food is addictive, and I absolutely do not want to invalidate somebody's experience of feeling addicted to food because it, I've felt that, um, I have a lot of clients that feel that and there's good science for why you feel that way, but food in itself, um, there's, there's some flaws with the studies about food addiction. A lot of them don't control for deprivation. So, ah. you know, what they've shown in, in studies done on rodents is that when, like sugar addiction is a study done that was done with rodents, that when they have intermittent access to sugar or they are starving before they're given the sugar, then they do, the dopamine receptors have been altered and they do show similar Uh, signs to uh, drug addiction.
0: Okay, so I want to pause you right here. So what I hear you saying is that deprivation in and of itself creates that addiction to food. That it's it's being deprived that makes us crave or literally be addicted to Doritos or whatever it is. Am I am I hearing you great? Yes, absolutely. Okay, and so that's really kind of the underpinnings for intuitive eating. If you if you take away that deprivation, mm-hmm. then you you t- remove the charge of of that
1: food. Absolutely, yes. Food is more rewarding when we have been deprived of it, and that's uh, if you think about it, a very smart biological mechanism. Because if it were a time of famine. You know, we would be driven to get the food that is off limits. I was just going to say about the, you know, Doritos and, and, you know, you mentioned, I think, did you say Doritos? I did. I I did say Doritos. Yes. I'm thinking (laughs) about Doritos. Um, Yeah. So I think that as you get more comfortable with that, you have this equilibrium with food where you can eat as you you can eat, you're honoring your hunger and your body, you build body trust because your body knows that you're going to feed it when it's hungry and Mm -hmm. that you, you are allowed to have all foods. Then you start to recognize things, um, like, When I have Doritos for lunch, just Doritos, I don't really feel that good in the afternoon. If I have a few Doritos along with some protein and fiber, I notice that I have more energy in the afternoon. And that starts to feel less like I'm restricting myself of Doritos
0: and more like I'm doing the thing
1: that feels good in my body.
0: Okay, so that's a very important distinction. And and obviously everybody's different, different approaches are gonna work for different people, just like diets, just like just like everything. But what I hear you saying is when you take off that charge of some foods are good and some foods are bad, we're able then to be around more foods and actually notice how they make us feel. Mm-hmm. And then perhaps naturally we tend to migrate more towards foods that make our bodies feel good regardless of, you know, so it's, so that's a, that's a tricky balance. Do you notice that when people, when people are changing, kind of moving to that intuitive eating approach, do they often gain weight? That's a great question.
1: So yeah, intuitive eating is not the goal with intuitive eating is not weight loss. And in fact, it's really important that when, uh, starting an intuitive eating approach that you put weight loss on the back burner, Okay, Uh, because if you have that desire, you, you, certainly may still have the desire for weight loss, but if you're actively pursuing it, it's going to get in the way of your intuition and it's going to drive some of your food choices and probably... Um, it's just going to disrupt the process? To answer your question, yes, some people do gain weight. That actually happened for me when I started intuitive eating because I was restricted with my food before I started eating intuitively. For some people, they lose weight. I mean, it really, and some people say the same, it really depends on, on what- On the person. Yeah, exactly. But the goal and what I found with intuitive eating is that people get to their natural set point weight. So
0: the weight that uh. their body was meant to be. But probably have a lot more peace around food. Yes, exactly. And if that's the goal, then that's something that's really important for people. Yeah. yeah. Maddie actually has a question. She says, what is body trust? Mm, That's a great question.
1: Um, It's a wonderful thing. (laughs) Um, Body (laughs) trust would be um, being able to start to hear your hunger and fullness and be able to trust it. So you can trust that if you're hungry, you can eat. And your body in turn starts to trust you that you're going to feed your body when you're hungry. It's creates a lot more peace around food as As one might
0: expect yeah Mm -hmm. i I, I, as you say that that resonates with me just you know like when you're dieting and you're hungry it's like oh my gosh this lady this crazy lady may never feed me again but when you're not dieting and you have more peace around food it's like yeah, yeah yeah i'll get to the food i may be out running errands but i'll get there and it's just not as crazy making Exactly. Yeah. And, and at the same, you know, on the
1: other side, you know, I trust my body not to eat the entire bag of Doritos. You know, I can be around uh, the Doritos or whatever. I don't know why I'm focusing on Doritos, or, but, you know. <laughs> they are and, delicious. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And I, and I can trust that I'll stop when I feel satisfied. Or maybe, you know, or maybe I'm having a really hard day or I need a distraction and I won't, but I, I can trust that my body is going to digest those Doritos and I'll be able to move on and not panic
0: around that. Such good suggestions. All right, Lori says, I've been seeing a dietitian, and she said, I need more p- self-positive thoughts. And all I can come up with is Harleys have great hair. She also said, I can eat anything in moderation. She says I can eat anything but just in moderation, but I can't. Three chips are not enough when there is a nice big bag opened now. How might Lori ease into mm-hmm. a more of an intuitive eating approach? If, if that were something that she wanted to try to do. Yeah, three chips are
1: not enough. That is That is going to be very difficult, um, especially, like I've been saying, if you have any history of deprivation and dieting. Um, and, and like I mentioned before, that natural you know sense of autonomy within you is going to hear only three chips, but I want the whole bag, and, and that's going to feel out of control. So how to ease into it, I would suggest, I mean, I'm biased, but I would suggest getting the Intuitive Eating book by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Rush. On their website, they have a, a database of dietitians that use that approach as well. That's a great idea. Um, so that would be intuitiveeating.org. It is important with intuitive eating, if I haven't said this already, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but it is important to get support, especially if you have this history of kind of chaotic eating or or deprivation, because mm-hmm. it can be very challenging to just give yourself total permission to eat without having some guidance. Um,
0: I, so I, I really want to call that out, because I think that's a really good point. I think especially when we've been on a whole lot of diets um, and then kind of had that equal and opposite binge, mm-hmm. the idea of like like... like I can eat anything, anything I want, might be a little overwhelming. So kind of go reading the book, paying attention to kind of this is the approach and seeking help. Mm -hmm. To kind of deal with those unpleasant feelings that might be causing us to eat in entirety, yeah. it's probably a whole approach. Yes, absolutely. So, so Sherry says, I can appreciate what you're saying, but I do not trust myself with full permission, and I assume this is a natural reaction. Haha, ha. Sherry, I think you're right. You're I mean, I, yeah, right, yes. I think anybody who you know who's been in the space, that's a real concern. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> yes,
1: everything we just said and um, seeing a dietitian and/or a therapist. I mean, if you have the ability to see both, I think that's really would be. Very helpful. Also, um, I should add that there are lots of podcasts. Um, you know, the hosts of which are dietitians that mm. I listen to that I've learned a lot from, and websites and resources. I'd be happy to provide some if there's some way to get that sure, to you. Um, that um, that can be really helpful. It's going to be really difficult to trust yourself, especially because you are being bombarded all the time with external diet information. So part of what I do with clients when we use this intuitive eating approach is clean out their Instagram account, you know, get rid of any accounts that are triggering in any way, any sort of, I should be eating less or I should only be eating these foods and getting that bug in your
0: ear, you know, through the podcasts or through... Almost hear hear voices saying positive message to kind of counterbalance yeah. all those negative, you know, messages he, that were around inherently just in our society. Definitely. You'll you'll need a lot of support to do that. Yes, Sherry,
1: I totally get that.
0: So one thing when people talk about emotional eating, a lot of times they say, oh, you just need a replacement activity. You need mm-hmm. something else to do. But I think when you're really hurting and you want food, it is really hard to think, oh, reading a magazine is going to make me feel better. So when you're working with clients, mm-hmm. how do you encourage them to think about other activities to do when they're stressed mm-hmm. and, and and how to frame that in their minds? Yeah,
1: that's a great um, question. So with clients, often I will um, help, you know, together we'll compile a list of different things that they can do that uh, provide, you know, the things that they often need, whether it's soothing, um, you know, maybe they're eating food to soothe themselves, maybe they're eating food because they need a distraction or because they're bored. And so we can compile a list of things. And I I will never say you have to do these things and not eat. Um, you you can try these things and then eat afterwards. You know, maybe you'll decide that you don't want the food afterwards, but it's very likely that you'll still want the food. So, but you're still doing something to help create a new neural pathway in your brain if you reach for something else automatically.
0: Because you know, so much first, of it is habitual, isn't
1: it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. If every time you feel sad, you know, your brain remembers that ice cream provides relief Pleasant feelings, happiness, you know, the the things that you get from the ice cream, your brain remembers that, and it's it's gonna be very difficult to alter that neural pathway without having something to replace it. The the other thing I'll add is that um, a lot of the work that I do with clients is, as I've mentioned, kind of sitting with uncomfortable feelings
0: too. I'm so pivot. glad we came back to that because I, yeah. I do think that's really core. So so let's say that someone's having a feeling maybe of grief wash over them, and it's really Really painful. Um, How does someone develop that practice of 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 sitting sitting with what's unpleasant?
1: Yes, and that's very hard. Grief can be very challenging. Um, And and I and I'll say if I haven't said, you know, sometimes. Sometimes you do need distractions, Sometimes it is food,
0: and I would want to make that okay. I want to talk a little bit about. We've we've talked a lot about emotional eating. I want to talk a little bit about the other kinds of compulsive behaviors around food that are challenging for people, and that's over exercising, kind of in an attempt to undo calories, or obsessive weighing. What are some of the behaviors, you know, that that can be developed that are really harmful to mental health? Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you sug- How do you suggest people start taking those on? Great
1: question. Um, I think about this in kind of three main categories. So um one would be restriction or, um, you know, eating less. I have a lot of clients will tell me that, uh, you know, people will say, and I felt this too, that the feeling of fullness sometimes feel, I feel fat when I feel full. Uh. Or if I'm, you know, if I'm, have eaten less, I feel lighter and that makes me feel more in control. Um, other ways to restrict food would be restricting certain types of food like Gluten or dairy or sugar or carbs or something in the absence of a of a true allergy or sensitivity. So and then you know food food rules like I can I can't eat after seven o'clock or I can only eat dessert if I exercise. So this sort of category. Can be problematic, and the way you can tell is if you're missing out on your life in any way. If you're, you know, not going to social functions or work functions because the food makes you anxious or you can't eat. Um, and it can be really useful to talk to somebody about this. I think, especially if there's any deprivation going on, seeing a dietitian can be helpful to kind of get refed. That that if you have been under eating for a while, you uh. don't your hunger cues are not online, so you need to often go through a refeeding period before you can start to eat intuitively. Um, another thing you mentioned, weighing. So that's a form of body checking. There are other forms like, uh, you know, pinching parts of your body or looking in the mirror at certain parts of your body um, repeatedly. And this, uh, you know, I have clients say that sometimes the first thing they'll do in the morning is feel their stomach and see if how flat it feels or how round it feels. And if that's dictating your day, if your weight or how your stomach feels or what you see in the mirror is not pleasing to you, and that dictates your mood, that's a sign that it can be really problematic. And the third, you know, category I would say would be purging. This includes vomiting. That's one we automatically think of, but it could also be, you know, using enemas or diuretics or cleanses or um, detox supplements. These can all be quite dangerous actually so i think with any of these seeking some help can be Mm -hmm. really useful Mm -hmm. with the body checking behaviors a lot of times um, one really useful thing can it sounds overly simple but to just stop doing it so with a client i'll often uh have them keep a record of how often they're doing it but the less you do it the less
0: your brain looks for that uh relief that you get when you do it You know, as you're talking, it just strikes me that, you know, life is difficult and our society is challenging when it comes to weight and food and we get a lot of external messages and it really, you know, no wonder we develop these compulsive behaviors because we want to feel okay and we Mm -hmm. feel like our weight is in the way of that. For some people with its weight, for other people it might be other things. And that really gets back to that kind of self-acceptance and forgiveness. We really haven't talked about the forgiveness piece and I'm thinking about that person maybe after they've had an eating day that didn't Mm -hmm. go the way they wanted how might someone use forgiveness as a way to be kinder to themselves? And really at the core, I think we're talking about how someone can be happy and at peace. Mm-hmm. So how, how can forgiveness play a role in that? Well,
1: I mean, to really, you know, when I hear um, some of the experiences that I hear, I, obviously I have a lot of empathy because I've been through my own food struggles um, and issues with, you know, body image and stuff. But um, so forgiveness, I think I think of really understanding, well, that we are driven towards pleasant and driven away from unpleasant. You know, if we, I forgot the, the example, did you give me an example of?
0: Um, well, I was just, start? I was talking about forgiveness just as a, yeah, as, a as as in general, as a tool. Yes, yeah. Sorry. Just be, um, because it is so difficult, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Being kind so, to ourselves when society does not encourage that. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so I think understanding that it is not, it's not your fault. You know, some of the, a lot of these behaviors are, they're, driven into us, um, biological. If we've, like I've been saying, if we're deprived of food, we're going to move towards food. Um, and so really understanding that I think can help to cultivate some forgiveness.
0: So being put on a diet at an early age, as a lot of people who oh, are heavier yeah. have been, yeah. can really throw your your sense of deprivation out of whack, your sense of good foods and bad foods. Mm-hmm. And so for, to a very large degree, turning to food for comfort makes sense. It was all you had probably at a certain point in time. So that's really kind of the basis for forgiveness that you're exactly, talking about. Exactly. That was
1: very well put in. Yes, for sure.
0: I love that. All right. Um, Brigitte has a lovely comment. She says, uh, we live in a diet mentality society. Food should be enjoyed. Food should be nourishing. Brigitte, mm-hmm. we, I, we 100% agree. And, uh, Lori says, oh boy, I do excessively weigh four to five times a day. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a behavior. So might you encourage Lori to cut down on that behavior for a while and just see how she Absolutely, feels? Yes.
1: Um, I would say, I mean, if, if we were working together, I would encourage her to, to ditch the scale entirely, which might sound really uh, scary, but yeah, at the very least going down to once a day or once a week similar to how obsessive compulsive disorder looks we this can come up with food a lot even if you don't have ocd but we tend to look for the things that are going to give us immediate relief so maybe wondering what your weight is and then seeing your weight it provides a sense of relief in the immediate but ultimately you tend to you become reliant on it and of course if you don't see the number that you want on the scale
0: that creates a lot of negative um you're almost addicted to that roller coaster of like, Oh, I either feel really good or I'm I'm really disappointed and yeah, I feel bad. Yeah. Oh, that's really hard. So are there tools or practices that you recommend to people for helping them restore a sense of balance and ease around food and and really kind of all those behaviors that go along with it, be it exercising or overexercising? Yeah, way. absolutely. Um, and the first practice I would say is
1: honor your hunger. So as I've said so many times now, um, you know, if you are hungry, you're not going to have a sense of balance and ease around food if you, if you have that primal hunger. So really paying attention to that. And a lot of people will tell me, you know, I don't really feel... Hungry during the day, um, maybe they ate a lot the night before. They had a binge, or they just are, you know, uh, distracted during the day. So, but really, getting back to eating with some regularity is an is an important practice.
0: And I've heard that, for, particularly for people who struggle with binge eating disorder, making sure you're getting food during the day is mm-hmm. really key for kind of preventing that binge eating Absolutely. at night. That's okay. the number one thing. If I have
1: anybody who's coming in with binging behavior, we're working on. Are you biologically hungry? And then I would also say, um, you know, the self-compassion thing. So checking out Kristen Neff's website um, and working on cultivating more of that self-acceptance, self-compassion. I highly recommend meditation, mindfulness practice. Um, That's going to be very key in helping you to become more attuned with hunger and fullness, with how you're feeling and some of the motivation behind you. And sitting with those feelings, like you talked about earlier, that's the best way to do it. So there are lots of apps you can get on your phone that are wonderful. I love Headspace, Calm, Ten Percent Happier, Um,
0: Insight. I think Insight 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 Timer. Yeah, Yeah. that one's free, which is great. Ad,
1: yes, so you don't have to subscribe. And yeah, yeah, and then you could also just YouTube meditations. um, But that that would be a key
0: practice. I'm going to pause you right there because Gloria just asked a question, and I think this is such an important question. She says, my 11-year-old granddaughter is overweight. What is the best way to help her? I would never want to make her self-conscious or feel bad about herself. Um, And I don't want other kids to make her feel bad, but I know how teenagers can actually be when she gets Mm. older. That is such a tough question. It um, is. How, what would you suggest to Gloria? Yes, Gloria. I and I can
1: understand that you feel some fear for her and you have a lot of compassion. It sounds like you're a very caring grandmother. Um I would say she's at a critical time right now where if she is in any if she's put if she's goes on a diet or she's pressured to lose weight at all, her likelihood for an eating disorder is increased. And her likelihood to have Chaotic eating and challenges with food later on is also increased. So, I would encourage you, Gloria, to maybe to check out some of the intuitive eating resources that I put out. There are some specifically. Uh, I'm, I'm going to include a podcast that's about raising body positive children, and I think that will help some helpful tools. Um, but really, acceptance and um, you know, just being really being compassionate. If she's expressing um, discomfort with her weight and anxiety about it and anything, being able to be there without, this is going to be hard, but, you know, without offering any kind of diet, just be able to listen and try to, as much as you can, counteract what she might be experiencing at school or wherever else. So being that safe, loving, accepting place. Yes. So taking some of the stigma out. We live in a very fat phobic culture, unfortunately. um, And so she's going to be getting a lot of that from other places. But if you can remain neutral and bodies come in different sizes, you know, and um, just, you know, kind of reinforcing that message, you could be a huge piece to her having less issues around this issue later on.
0: Gosh, I think that's such, such, such good suggestions. Is there anything you'd like our audience to know before we go?
1: Yeah. Well, you brought up, um, you brought up happiness and um, how, you know, I can't remember in the question you did, but there was something I wanted to add about just, yeah, we tend to believe that happiness is a state that we're going to get to and we're going to be able to stay there. So once I lose this amount of weight, once I get this job title, once I meet my life partner, then I'll be happy. But the truth is that we we can't hold on to happiness. No human can. A full life has a full range of emotions. Um, and so recognizing that being able to embrace all of those can really lead to more of a lasting,
0: more satisfying type of happiness. Because if we're not afraid of certain emotions, that leads to just a more stable emotional experience. And in and of itself, that that is peaceful. Absolutely. And the last thing I'll say too is to add to that is that if we're
1: living a life in line with our values and we're pursuing goals that are meaningful to us, that is inevitably going to involve discomfort, you know, vulnerability, <laughs> challenges, anxiety. Sure. Yes, and so really working towards that sort of life instead of like, let me meet this one weight loss goal
0: or and and yeah. shut my life down in order yeah, to get exactly. there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Katie, thank you. I cannot thank you enough. You have been such a source of wisdom and inspiration. I I really appreciate it on behalf of me and I know all of the folks watching. Thank you very much. We will have you on again because there's so much we still didn't even get to talk talk about. So when I'm thin (laughs) fantasy, so many things. So thank you again.